The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ruth, entitled, The Broken Road to Glory. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Today we are beginning a short four-week study through the Old Testament book of Ruth. Some of you may be familiar with this book, but I know that many of you are not. It's kind of hidden in the Old Testament. So let me introduce it to you. 
the Old Testament, the Bible is made up of two testaments, we call them. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is basically before Jesus and the, and the New Testament is basically after Jesus. The Old Testament segment section of, of the Bible is made up of four big sections, okay? The law, I could go through that, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, okay? And then it goes into history and then poetry, you get the Psalms and stuff, and then you have the prophets, okay? The book of Ruth is a short four-chapter book in the historical section, okay? It's sandwiched between the historical books of Judges and First and Second Samuel. So it's, those are longer books, and it's a little tiny four-chapter book, so it's very, it's very hard to find in your Bible if you're looking for it. And it it's often gets missed and gets hidden. Now, most of the historical section of the Bible is written with the nation of Israel in view, okay? Most of the historical books are a 30,000-foot view. It's like an overview of the significant events in the life of this people as they became a nation, as they solidified their new kind of national identity, and as they lived out that national identity as God's chosen people in a hostile, in a world that was hostile to God. So when you're reading the history books of the Old Testament, there's a lot of war. There's a lot of national events that take center stage. This nation is rising up against that nation. And if you're just reading through your Bible, it's hard to keep everything straight. It's easy to get confused. And it can, sometimes it gets very boring. It feels like you're reading a history book, right? You're reading a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of different places. And you're like, but what does this mean for me in my devotional time, right? What's God saying to me? Who am I supposed to conquer today? No, that's not how you read the history books, right? But the book of Ruth is a different type of history book. It catches you off guard and it pulls you in. See, the book of Ruth is a history book. The technical term is it is a historical narrative, so the events in this book, now listen, here's the deal. They actually happened. We're not reading a myth. These events actually happened. These people, the names are real. They're real. Uh, they were real people. But this book is a lot different from the other historical books in the Old Testament. Instead of focusing on the nation of Israel as a whole, this book zooms in on one family. One family. Normal family. What you're going to see as we read this book, there's no miracles. No burning bushes. No chariots of fire. No spirits showing up and speaking to people. No audible voice of God. This is absolutely normal. It's often said that as the family goes, so goes the nation. And this book is kind of a testimony to that. It's a true statement, but when you're living in a normal family, it's hard to actually see that reality. How can what I do at my dinner table affect the nation? This is the 17th time I've put this child to bed tonight. How can that affect anything of national interest? It's hard to see the reality of how the day in and out, day in, day out monotony of family life could actually influence a nation and maybe even more than a nation, maybe actually the whole world. But the book of Ruth, for all the normal families out there, the book of Ruth 
is good news for us. The book of Ruth gives us a front row seat to see how one normal family could impact a nation and actually the whole world. Now, I know it sounds crazy, but if you stick with us over the next four weeks, I promise you, you will be amazed. I don't use that word lightly. One more thing before I jump into our text this morning. Thankfully, historical narrative is a lot more interesting than reading a history book. This is a book describing real historical events, but it's being told by an expert storyteller, familiar with all kinds of literary tools to keep it interesting and surprising to the reader. This story was told orally before it was written down and codified for people to read. So this is a, a fun story to read out loud. It's a fun thing to work through together as a church, and it's a fun thing for you to read together with your family. So what I'm going to do, kind of unique, I'm going to let the story naturally unfold as we go. I'm not going to ruin whatever may be, there may be a surprise ending, there may be something coming, but I'm not going to ruin it by pointing to it in the first week, right? Can you imagine how lame it would be if we knew Darth Vader was Luke's father in the first scene of Return of the Jedi? (laughs) Oh yeah, by the way, that's dad. Right? And so each week, <clears throat> there, listen, we might have an ache, especially in our society, where we've gr- grown up with 26-minute-long sitcoms that have a re- resolution at the end within 26 minutes, right? So, oh, problems created, oh, problems resolved, 26 minutes, boom. We're not going to have that each week. We might desire to wrap things up with a happy ending by jumping to the end of the story, but we're going to resist that. We're going to let each chapter of the story stand on its own and then build to its natural climax. Now, I'm not going to stop you from reading ahead. In fact, I highly encourage you to read this book at least once every week over the next month. Every time you read it, you will probably pick up new details. And if you want a short commentary on the book to help you read along and help put it in a a context and help you make sense of some of the details, I would suggest it's a small book called Finding God by Sinclair Ferguson. Okay, so that's where we're going. I'm gonna pray. We're gonna jump in to verse one this morning. Father, clearly I am weak this morning. My body is not doing what I want it to do. Uh, My vocal cords are weak and I am Um, I'm sick and I'm in need and I know how distracting it can be to listen to a a preacher uh, suffer through and struggle through and hack his way through. So I pray that you just give me grace and you give our people grace right now. Father, this book is an old book that you've given us. Um, I pray that you would surprise us with something from it today. I pray that you would speak to your people and we would hear your voice. Uh, Think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords. Let it be all of you and none of me this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So you can open up your Bible to the book of Ruth. We will have some of it on the screen for you. There are some Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. Let's just jump in right in. Here here we go. The book of Ruth, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife 
and his two sons. First off, this tells us that this happened in the time when the judges ruled. That means what happened in this story happened between 1200 BC and 1020 BC, somewhere in there. That's when the judges ruled. It was the time between Joshua's death and the coronation of Saul as king. Now, what that means for us is a couple things. One, what we're reading is at least a 3,000-year-old story. The events that we're reading happened a 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. So it's a very old story. Secondly, this time when the judges ruled was an era of social and religious chaos. Israel was ruled by military leaders. Now, many of us would like that. Most of us would not if our generals of the military were, were leading our country, right? And if you read uh, the, the judges of Israel were not the most, you know, Samson was one of them, okay? If you've ever read the story of Samson, you don't want that guy running a country, right? He gets mad over, you know, well, I'm not even gonna go into it, but it was a very, Instab unstable time for the nation of Israel. They were constantly at war with surrounding nations. They lacked any political stability. And they were incessantly being pulled away from their devotion to Yahweh. In, that, that's God's covenant name that he gives. Into worship of other gods. So all the nations surrounded them, worshiped different gods, and they would be pulled into that kind of, that worship often. Here's how the book of Judges describe this period when the judges ruled from Judges 21, 25. And it says it several times in that book. Quote, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you imagine? Everyone did what was right in his own sight. Just imagine not having stoplights for a minute. We, I've, been to, I've been to Kenya the most dangerous part is getting from the airport to my hotel. It's absolute chaos. Just people running over each other. No stoplights. That's what's going on in the nation of Israel at this time. Now, so that's the context. That's a little bit where this is at. So there's political instability. There's chaos. Everybody's kind of doing what they want. There's no king in Israel. Now, on top of all of this, our text gives us something else. More uncertainty and more chaos. There, a famine hits the nation. Now, we have national, uh, natural disasters hit our country all the time. Right now, fires are raging in California. But because we have somewhat of a stable um, economy and somewhat of a stable polit political system, we've got different things to set up. FEMA and other organizations and nonprofits that can help um, alleviate the pain that floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and all of that, that chaos cause. But if you look at a country like Haiti, when Haiti got, gets hit with a, with a natural disaster, it ruins their culture, right? It ruins their society, it crushes their economy, it crushes their country. Well, Israel is in a similar time. And now famine hits the land and it's, it's dire straits for the people. Now, so that's going on. There's great need, but 
this sets the scene, this is kind of setting the scene for us. And if we have a biblical lens, if we're, if we're familiar with biblical narrative at all, the word famine and the idea of famine should also pique our interest. See, it's meant to, it's kind of like an Easter egg. Video game creators now put little Easter eggs in video games that, that people can find and they're little special, you know, tokens for people to play the game. This is kind of an Easter egg for, for a Hebrew person who would be telling the story. He would say, and then a famine hits the land and all the Hebrew children would go, ooh. Why? Because famine has played an important role in the story of God's dealing with Israel. Famine drove Joseph's family into Egypt to seek help, where God had caused, caused Joseph to rise to power, and he was able to rescue his family and secure provision for his family in a time of great need. So God had used famine in the past to get his people where he wanted them to be, to position them for a greater blessing. So as somebody's telling the story, the, the listener would go, hmm, Famine, oh, Easter egg. Maybe that's what God's doing here. Maybe, maybe God's using famine to get his people where he wants them to be. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen more closely to this story. In biblical narratives, famines play an important role. But there's another hint here. There's, a, there's another concept around famines. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, God told Israel before he gave them this land, before he told them to enter into the promised land, that they had to be careful to keep the Lord first in their hearts. And he said, if they did, he would bless them and he would bless their land with abundance. It'd be a land flowing with milk and honey, if you remember that. But if they didn't, if they, their hearts turned away from God and they followed a different God or they walked away from the Lord, then he would send a famine to punish them. Now, or he would send a famine to them. I, I want to clarify that. Not to punish them but to bring repentance to them. Famine was meant to be a wake-up call. God's meeting our needs. When we follow him, he's gonna meet all of our needs. And if we turn away from him, he's gonna cut off the supply. Why? So that we would turn back to him and go, oh, I repent. I'm, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. I've sinned against you. Now, we need to know that as we begin to study the book of Ruth. We need to have these, okay, what's he doing with this famine? Famine's an important part. Is, is this God's way of getting him where he wants him to go? Is this a famine that's caused because of their disobedience? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And we're gonna ask this text a lot of questions this morning. The next thing we need to see, and it's interesting, is that he's a man of Bethlehem. And the word Bethlehem literally means place of bread. So Bethlehem means. Isn't it kind of ironic here that the place of bread literally runs out of bread? <laughs> right? Oh, okay. Hebrew would, a Hebrew would pick up on that. Right? He, he, would, he would get that. <clears throat> now, why? Why has, why has Bethlehem ran out of bread? We can infer from this already because the people are, quote, doing what's right in their own eyes. They have walked away from the Lord. They're not, they have not been careful to keep the Lord first in the heart. So the Lord has sent a famine here to get their attention and to bring about their repentance. Now here's the next question. How are they going to respond? Okay, the Lord said he was gonna do this. He actually did it. What should my first response be? Well, this family doesn't respond in contrition and repentance and say, I've confessed my sins to the Lord. 
Look what this family does. And let me go to verse two. The name of the man was Elimelech. Now another Easter egg. Elimelech means God is king. Okay? That's what the word means. His name means God is king. And the way wife and his, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraim, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Look, they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. So this man, whose name literally means God is king, decides to take his wife and his two children out of the promised land and into the country of Moab to find bread, to meet their needs. Now, again, first, if God is your king, if your name means God is king, why can't you trust him to provide for you in the land that he commanded you to go, in the land that he promised you and gave to you as an inheritance? Why can't you trust God there? Well, clearly, because there's a famine. And Elimelech's first response to a famine isn't, I need to repent, I need to get my family around the table, and we need to confess our sins to God. We need to turn away from these godless idols and turn back to the God, the one true God, and, and seek him, and he's going to meet our needs here in this land. Instead, he goes off to Moab. Now, Moab, I don't know how any other words to describe it. Moab was a nasty nation. If you know your Old Testament, the founder of the Moabites was Moab. The founder of Moab was Moab. And Moab was the son of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Everything about Moab spelled alienation from God and from his promises. They were a wicked nation. They worshiped the gods of nature. That worship usually included all kinds of pagan activities such as cultic prostitution. This was literally the, the, the filth that God had already rescued them from. All the chaos of bringing them out of the nation of Egypt and bringing them out from other nations and other gods was to give them this land where they could worship the one true God and they could create lives based on his holiness, lives that honor God and, honors and honor others. And yet this man, Elimelech, when things get difficult in Bethlehem, he leaves the promised land and goes into the land of Moab. He decided to take his family back into the mess because there was a job there. At least I can provide for my family in Moab. We don't have to go hungry in Moab. In Moab, there's bread. See, fathers, this is, isn't this what we do? Like, we're gonna figure it out on our own. We can't figure out how to pay the bills. We can't figure out how to make ends meet. We can't figure out what's gonna happen. And so we go to work on figuring out on our own. We don't take into account, you know what? There's, there's a better paying job in another city. There's more, a better opportunity over there. And you go, well, is there, is there a, a good gospel-centered community there? Is there a good church there? I don't know, we'll figure that out when we get there. Really? Elimelech does the same thing over 3,000 years ago. He's trusting his own wisdom and his own ability to take care of his family rather than trusting God. And you know what? This doesn't go well for him. Look at verse three. But Elimelech, <clears throat> the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. God is king, 
dies in a pagan country. Now, immediately, we should be asking, if God is king, where is he at in this story? The man we might have assumed to be the hero. If you step into a story and your name is Aragorn, okay, this guy's probably pretty cool. Let's keep an eye on this guy. This guy's name is Elimelech. It means God is king. I'm like bookmarking. He's going to be the hero. Scene one, dead. Okay, that's a surprise. Didn't see that one coming, right? And now this puts his wife and children in a horrible spot, right? The nation, no political stability, right? There's no state aid to help them, okay? He's away from family. He left the covenant community. He left Israel. He's in a foreign land with foreign people, right? Imagine moving your family over to Iraq and you get there and you die and you leave your wife and children there alone. She's got no way to provide for the the kids. The future is looking very bleak. The children are without a father. Things have went from bad to worse. Verse four. She was left with her two sons. Verse four, these, her sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Okay, pause. Dad's dead. The leader of the family is gone. Nobody's leading family devotions here. Nobody is, is leading their, 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 the children in the way that they should go. And what do these two boys do? They grow up without a father and they look around and they see some pretty young things around them. And they're like, these Moabite, they grow them all right around here. Moabite women. They get married to Moabite women. Now, these are women who worship other gods. Okay? Is it? These are w- women who, who, who knows what they do, right? They, they practice the cultic worship. They're not Israelite people, right? They're not of their faith. This is, Scripture tells us in the New Testament, not to be unequally yoked, a believer with an unbeliever. That what that means for us is like, for me personally, as I marry a lot of people, that I will marry a Christian and a Christian, and I will even marry a non-Christian and a non-Christian, but I will not marry a Christian and a non-Christian. Why? Because it's setting them up for failure. God says not to do it. So for Naomi, things have gone worse. She's got these two daughter-in-laws now from a different religion, from a different nation. Let's keep reading. And they were living there for about 10 years. And then both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, now anybody in Hebrew society as they're hearing this story, they'd be like, this is the worst possible scenario for a woman. Patriarchal society, you've got no husband, you've got no sons, your sons were your retirement. There were no nursing homes. Your sons were going to grow old, get a job, provide for their family, and take care of you. You would live with your sons. They would pay your bills. They would meet your needs. And they would keep you in their house until you died. And so you have got no husband. You've got no sons. You've got no providers. You've got no security. You've got no family. You've got no church family, no covenant community, no relationships, no hope for the future. Naomi's fate here is bitter. 
Now, I think you... Now, here's the problem. There's a way of reading this kind of story that misses the point. And it treats it kind of like Mother Goose. Oh, this is a moralistic tale meant to teach people morals, how to be good people. I can clearly see the structure. I can see where this story is going, right? It's another obey God or else story. Look, you disobeyed God and he killed your family. And that's meant to like, oh, okay, I guess I'm gonna worship God. I don't want him to kill my family. Obey God and it will go well with you. Disobey God and you will ruin your life. Now, in one kind of very vague sense, one general view, that is true. You break God's commandments and they break you. Bottom line. It's like the law of gravity. You don't believe in the law of gravity and you jump off a building, you'll be broke when you hit the ground, right? You don't believe in honoring God. You don't believe in doing the right thing. You don't believe in obeying God. You know, I could go through the list of the Ten Commandments. You break them, they break you. In one general sense, that is true. But that is not the primary message of the Bible, nor the primary message of this story, because thank God, that's just the first chapter, or that's just the first paragraph. That's just the introduction. That's just setting the stage for the story. If I was to give this first chapter of Ruth a title, I would call it There and Back Again. Gosh, didn't know if you're going to pick up on it. I didn't even say anything about Lord of the Rings. Nothing. Not the Hobbit, nothing. Just that's what I would call it because that's what it is. You'll begin to see the story. She, they begin in Bethlehem and then they go off into Moab and then they go, they end up back in Bethlehem. Now, here's what's interesting. And you, you, you won't pick this up by reading it in our English transi- translations because they translate a Hebrew word a little differently to make it not sound wooden, right? You, when you're telling a story, you don't want to use, let me tell you this, this, this word, it's a Hebrew word called, it's a Hebrew word, shub, and it's used 10 times in the first chapter, right? Now, it's kind of it's weird for us. We're not used to hearing that, and it's the word for return. It means to return, to turn back, to change directions, to be brought back. It's a narrative tool that is meant to communicate the biblical concept of repentance. Repentance means I was going this direction and I stop and I turn around and I change directions and I return. I go back to what is good. And that Hebrew word shub is used 10 times in the first chapter. Any Hebrew would go, oh, this is about returning. This is about leaving and coming back. This is about leaving home and coming back to home. It's about leaving God and coming back to God. And it's kind of, it, it hasn't, we haven't seen it yet. It's really, the first paragraph is meant to set up the, the next, the rest of the chapter so we can see it kind of juxtaposed. This was about leaving God. This was about going away. This was about moving out. And the rest of the chapter is about God bringing them back and about returning and coming back to God. Elimelech leaves. Elimelech takes his family literally away from the Lord and away from God. 
And there they remained in Moab. They stayed there, settled down in disobedience for another 10 years. Now, is that how the story is going to end? Thankfully, if it had a postmodern script, it would. There it is. Life sucks. Mic drop. They go off into Moab. Everybody dies. Isn't that avant-garde? We love this. But thankfully, it's not. It's a biblical narrative, and it does have hope, even though the hope may be difficult to see. So let's keep reading. Verse 6. Then she, this is Naomi, then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law, look, to return from the country of Moab. Now, ladies, this is a strong woman of faith. She does not settle down in her despondency. She does not say, life sucks. There's no hope. I've lost my husband. I've lost all my boys. I'm just going to settle down and, and just die here in Moab. She says, you know what? I think I see what's going on here. It was foolish us for us to leave Bethlehem. It was foolish us to leave the land of our God. It was foolish of us to leave our family and our covenant community. You know what we need to do? We need to go back. We need to repent. We need to return. And so Naomi takes a risk. She's going to travel with just her daughters-in-law and go back to Bethlehem. This bold move requires courage in the face of all of her loss and trouble. In a sense, she does have to pull herself up by her bootstraps here. Put her big girl pants on, right? And go do the hard thing in front of her. And Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem and go back to her God, verse seven. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Now what she's doing right here, these women were, rel- they, they were, they were relatively young. They were probably in their mid-20s. They, they got married really early, really young. And then they spent 10 years in Moab. Um, and then, and, but they're still, they're still of married, marriage, marriage age, okay? So they, she can send them back to her mother's house, go back under the, the provision of her father. They can have their needs met. And then they can look for another husband and they can have hope in their future, Okay, so she's really giving them an out. She's like, you don't have to be committed to me. You don't have to be committed to my God and going back with me. If you're still a Moabite, go back and be with your family. Keep reading. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and the dead with with me. Verse nine, the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. See, she's saying there's hope for you on this earth. You can still have a husband. Then she kissed them. Naomi is showing her great love for them. She wants what's best for them. And she lifted up, or and they lifted up their voices and wept. So these girls loved their mother-in-law. And they said to her, no, we're gonna return with you to your people. But Naomi, she's, she's driving a hard bargain here. She's giving them the hard sell. Turn back, my daughters. Why are you gonna go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? that they may become your husbands. So here's, she's picking apart any hope that they have. Maybe they're thinking, well, maybe Naomi's gonna go back and she'll have sons and we can marry someone there. 
They're not going to find, she doesn't think they're going to find husbands back in Bethlehem. So she's like, she's telling them, taking away all hope for provision on this earth. No, no, no. There's not going to be any sons coming from me. If you want a son, if your main reason in life right now, if your identity is built upon finding a husband, you better go back to Moab to do it. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for you, for to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God has done this, she recognizes. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, what's really going on here? Naomi is seeing where her daughter-in-law's hearts are at. In a sense, Jesus did this in the New Testament when, he, when the rich young ruler came up to him and said, Jesus, what do I got to do to be saved? Now, we know if anybody comes up to you and says, what do I got to do to be saved? Everyone here says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins and believe in him. That's what you do. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't go, believe in me. Jesus says, go sell everything you, long story, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away sad. Why? Because Jesus is seeing what's in this ruler's heart. In this young man's heart, the love of money was more important to him than the love of Jesus Christ. Naomi's doing the same thing 2,000 years or 1,000 years earlier. She's saying, hey, you're not getting a husband from me. You're not gonna probably find a husband in Israel. If you're wanting a husband, if that's your meaning in life, that's where you tap real meaning, finding a husband, you better go back to your gods in Moab. She's serious. <laughs> Naomi's saying, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm going to worship God, but if, if that's what you want, you can go. She's returning to her God and she's giving her daughters an opportunity to follow her. If they really want to know the one and only real God, they can follow her. But what we see, Orpah goes back home, choosing her old life and her false gods. And Ruth, however, here's the deal. Ruth gets converted. It's the word, conversion. In no uncertain terms, Ruth gets saved. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And, and, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I won't say anything about mother-in-laws there. I'll just let that, I'll just let that stop. All right? Now listen, this is meant to shock the reader. Shock the reader like this. Kanye West just got saved. You've heard this probably in the last couple of weeks. 
what was your response? We'll wait and see. That's how a Hebrew would hear this. A Moabite says, I'm leaving my gods, I'm leaving my nation, I'm leaving my home, and I'm clinging to this one single old lady, and I'm trusting in her God, and I'm going to go with her people in her nation and serve her God. Kanye West just got saved. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off that just for a second, for a second, all right? Kanye West's last album, like, you, you know, he, he said, he's basically saying he is God. I am a God. He wants to be called Jesus, right? Sounds like Jesus. He literally has a stage that rotates and his people worship him on it. Kanye West, center of culture, billionaire, creative artist, married into the Kardashians, Wife got famous through a sex tape. Billionaire heiress. Father. Yeah. Father becomes a woman. Olympic, Olympian, Olympian becomes a woman leading the trans, leading on the cutting edge of the transgender movement. You look in at this situation and you go, that's everything that's wrong with our society. And God looks and goes, oh, Mine. Kanye West just got saved. And if there's any other response than the worship of God in your heart, then you don't get it. That's what happens right here to Ruth. See, God is showing his miraculous and sovereign grace in the midst of this horrible situation where one man sinned and led his people out of the place where he should have been, led him into a place, into a mess. One man led his family into a mess. He dies, his boys died, and look in the midst of this, God maybe allowed all that to happen to save one Moabite. This is the sovereign grace of God. See, this isn't a moralistic tale. Don't be like Elimelech. If you disobey God, he's coming with a big stick. That may be true. I'm not saying it's not true. Break God's commandments, they break you. But that's not the point of this story. God can work in the midst of human sin. God can overcome human sin. God can use your sin for his glory and for his good. And in the midst of all this sin, maybe he did it all to save one Moabite. Now, see, is this story about the consequences of sin or is this story about the sovereign grace of God? About how the grace of God can overcome the sin of man and produce beauty from ashes. And I want to say, yes, it's about both at once. We should read this story and go, don't be like Elimelech. But even if I am an idiot like Elimelech, God really is king and he can save whoever he wants to save. Amen. I love it, man. Kanye West, I am God. In his next album, Jesus is king. I get goosebumps every time he says it. <laughs> Getting a little excited. My voice probably can't handle it. 
Let me tone it down. God uses the sin of Elimelech to bring about the salvation of Ruth in Moab. How mighty is our God? We need to be reminded that God still does this. We got to see it this past week with the, in a couple weeks with the conversion of Kanye. We've seen it in our own church and I won't, with Kayla and with Jeremy and with Connor among others this past year alone that God in the 17th most post-Christian city in the United States according to the Barna Research Study, God is saving people right now. And it's not because we're awesome. It's not because we're just out there knocking on doors, you know, with short sleeve shirts and black ties, Right? We're not riding tandem bicycles doing these things, right? What's God doing? God's going, mine, 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 mine. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And it's, he's calling people to himself to spur worship of himself. That's what we're meant to see here. Now, I'm not trying to just, there's a mechanistic way you can understand this. Oh, okay, so God's, God did that to Elimelech so that he could save Naomi or, or, and, uh, and Ruth. He does that, but it's not, it's not, you can't dumb down the story and simplify it like that. It isn't just, oh, well, hey, everything that's wrong in your life, don't worry. God works in mysterious ways and everything works together for your good, brother. So just suck it up and move, al- move along and everything's going to turn out okay. That is, it's true, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. Look at, let's keep reading because the story's not over. The chapter's not over. Verse 19, so the two of them, now, two, now it's just two women traveling alone, tons of courage here, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Everybody was tweeting about it. It was all over Facebook. The women said, is this Naomi? Everybody said, I'll wait and see. Hmm. She's been gone for a decade. We'll see what happens here. But Naomi said to them, look at this. Do not call me Naomi. Now the word Naomi, her name means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. See, this isn't just a simple story. Oh, let's just turn, on, turn your frown upside down. Everything's good because Ruth got saved. That's what it was all about. Naomi's like, no, 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 no. It's not that simple. Don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara because this is what she says. Call me Mara for the almighty God has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. Look, and the Lord has brought me back empty. This isn't her. She didn't choose to do this. It wasn't just her strength. The Lord has brought me back empty. What's that mean? I went away. My stomach was empty. Right? The famine drove me away, but I had everything I wanted. I had a husband. I had two beautiful boys. I had everything a Hebrew woman wanted. I had a happy home and a happy family. It was awesome. And I went off into Moab. And in Moab, the Lord dealt bitterly with me, and he took it all away from me. And now he's brought me back into Bethlehem, and I'm bitter. I come back empty. 
She left Bethlehem looking for bread, but with a full family and a promising future. She has returned looking for God with an empty family, dragging along one Moabite convert. And she knows. She didn't say the universe did this. The, the Lord has done this. See, when life goes hard, when, when we can't see God's good plan, what should we believe about God? Oh, it wasn't God, it was the devil. Please. Maybe it was the devil, but God's stronger than the devil and God allows the devil to do what the devil does. So don't blame it on the devil. God is doing it. See, what, what's God doing in this whole story? This seems really dark for Naomi. Well, there's one hint that it's not as dark as you think it is. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, so returned, remember, repented, came back. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And look, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. She entered the place of bread at the beginning of barley harvest. This is a very small evidence of grace. See, God has brought her back in a good season. Now, if you know anything about the nation of Israel, they had laws that when you harvest your field, you could not harvest the edges of your field. You had to leave the edges of your field so that the poor could come behind and work for their own food. If they weren't landowners and they didn't have seed to sow, they could come and on the edges of the field, they could come and they could glean the harvest and they could eat. And so there's a hint here that God has brought her back and, it's, and she feels bitter and she feels bitter about it, but God has already went before her and he's already providing for her in in the land that she's supposed to be in. It's harvest season. Don't worry. There's work for you here. Don't worry. You're going to be able to provide for yourself without a husband, without sons. God's already taken care of her in the midst of it. <coughs> now, what are we meant to see? We are meant to see, and I'm closing. We are meant to see God's faithfulness here. The word that, the, the, word that the, the scriptures use, it's a Hebrew word called hesed. It's hard to explain hesed. And it means God's one-way love, God's devotion, God's attention, God's faithfulness, God's steadfastness, that he will never forsake us. That though her experience in life has been bitter and her sin has had dire consequences, when she obeys him, he will take care of her. Now, God's steadfast love has been pursuing Ruth and pursuing Naomi. Listen, at our church, we spend a lot of time, every missional community, every huddle, every leadership meeting, sharing what we call evidences of grace. Small tokens of God's faithfulness among us. Here's what we believe. If God is real, if God is God, if God is who he says he is, then he's working among us everywhere right now. In every circumstance, in every season, whether our life is going well and according to plan or whether it's not going to according to plan at all. And for, if you're like me, it is not hard to see the problems in your life. My parents never had to teach me how to see my problems. I could see them on my own. 
I can see how things aren't working. I can see the famines and the death and the troubles and the tears and how everything's not going according to my plan. And what my brain does is grab on of everything that's wrong and just let's think about that all the time. That will make a good life for you. So I'm just walking around, just meditating on all my problems all the time. How can I fix it? How can I get my kids to do this? How can I love my wife well? How can I lead the church well? And just over and over and over. And what's not natural for me is to kind of cut through the darkness and find the light. To look across my life and across this ministry and across my friends and families and all the, you know, the circles of influence that I have and go, where is God working? Where can I see his fingerprints? See, it takes the eyes of faith to see God's hand at work sometimes when your life is like Naomi's or your life is even like Ruth's. We say it takes gospel eyes to see God's fingerprints in our life. And we as Christians need to be gospel-centered CSI detectives, right? Just looking for the evidences of his fingerprints wherever we're at. Anytime we see some new life appear, any time we see something miraculous happen, no matter how small it is, we need to say, that's God at work. Now listen, you, you may find yourself in a situation like Naomi. You may be in a bitter season. Maybe you have literally, like Naomi, you've literally walked away from God and you've been gone for a decade or more like her. Maybe you were raised in church as a, as a kid, but then you went away and you got up on your own and you said, I don't really need that old thing anymore and you've wandered away from God and you've been God for a long time. What should you do? You might want to throw your hands up and say, God doesn't want anything to do with me because I knew I was raised in the right, right way that I should go and I've walked away from it. God doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm an idiot like a limelech. Well, God has got you here this morning. God has, he's never stopped pursuing you. What should you do? You should pull a Naomi. You should return. You should repent. You should change directions. Return to the Lord. He's calling you to himself right now. Do the next right thing. Take a risk of faith like Naomi. Look for his fingerprints. How are you? Why are you here? Because you're working with the person that they, they invited you or, or you just heard them talking about church and you said, hey, can I go to church with you? What, what is that? That's God working. God's at work. God's drawing you to himself. Now listen, I know if your life is in a bitter place, this is not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. But here, here, here's one way it's a little bit easier for us than it was for Naomi. We have Jesus. Think about Jesus. Think about his life. And one way, Jesus, just like Naomi, had a there and back again story. Jesus, like Naomi, went away full and came back empty. 
Jesus left the security and the comfort of heaven, full of all of his godness, all of his God rights. And what did he do? He came to this sin sick earth and he put on flesh and he dwelled among us in all of our brokenness and all of our sin. And then he went even farther and on the cross, he took all of our sin, all of our foolishness, all of our brokenness, all of our shame. He literally emptied himself of all of his godlike attributes. And on the cross, he was cursed by God for our sake so that we could be blessed by God. Jesus did that for us. He left heaven in his fullness and came and emptied himself for us so that we could empty of our, uh, ourselves of our righteousness and say, I can never earn my way back to God. I am a fool. I am a broken sinner. There's no hope for me but the grace of God. And when a sinner cries out and they return like that, they repent, God brings his fullness into them and we get the fullness of God in our spirits. It's a, a miracle. And the, the fingerprints of that gospel story are here in the, the book of Ruth 3,000 years ago. And God may be speaking to you this, mo mo this morning, this moment from a 3,000-year-old book. Do you, does it resonate with you? Do you feel that? That's God. What's the next step? Return to him. He's pursuing you. He's never stopped loving you. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for this book. I thank you for the, your said, your one-way love, the way you pursue us, the way you come after us, that you truly are the hound of heaven. You never give up. I pray now that you're speaking and you're saving and you're changing, that you're doing what you did in the life of Kanye West and you're doing what you did in the life of Ruth, that you're doing it even in this gathering. That you would soften hard hearts. And we would cry out to you. As we come and take the Lord's Supper this morning, we just once again are reminded how far Jesus went to love us. He gave up his body. He gave up his blood. And the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for the remission of your sins. Eat it and drink it. So often as we come together, we are called to do this, to proclaim your death, to remember what you have done for Moabites like us. What sacrifice and what love you have for us. So would you bless this meal that we're about to take part in this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.